Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Scripture Uncovered. We follow Paul, Barnabas, and the young John Mark on their first missionary journey. Sent from their home church at Syrian Antioch, they set sail for Cyprus. They preached their way across Cyprus and then headed north to the southern coast of Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, to Antalya. And from there, up into the interior and then east. And all along the way, they were mostly rejected by the Jewish population in the synagogues, but a great many Gentiles were becoming believers. In fact, at the end of the first missionary journey, when they report back in at Syrian Antioch, people are astonished how the Gentiles are coming into the church. Now, we've already seen a Gentile come into the church, Cornelius. Peter was sent to Caesarea Maritima, where Cornelius was a centurion. And he preached to Cornelius and his family, and they became the first Gentiles to enter the church. But that was an aberration. You know, back in Jerusalem, the others said, well, I don't know about this, but I guess if the Holy Spirit came upon them, I guess it's all right. But the entire first generation, the eyewitness generation, it was 100% Jewish. This was a movement within Judaism. And the very idea that Gentiles would come into the church, well, frankly, astonished most of them. But now, as Paul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles and is actively recruiting them, actively evangelizing them, well, people sat up and took note. So we move today into Acts chapter 15, the Council at Jerusalem. We need to bring together all the leaders of the church and make a decision about these Gentiles. Yes, they're welcome in the church, but if they come into the church, they, they must observe the Mosaic law. Obviously, Jesus was a Jew. God gave the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. And that law included circumcision, dietary laws, and all the rest. So if a Gentile wants to become a follower of the Jewish Messiah, he enters through Judaism. Others said, no, that's not it at all, including Paul. So we have to meet and decide how are we going to deal with these Gentiles. So I turn to Acts 15, beginning at verse 1. So men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. A debate of no small proportion, as Luke was wont to say. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers, to go to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, headed south, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And this news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them, that is, through Paul and Barnabas and Mark, 
on that first missionary journey, about all the Gentiles coming in. And then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, that's all well and fine, but the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. It would make no sense at all for Gentiles to come into what is fundamentally a Jewish movement without first becoming Jews. So we're going to have an altar call here, and you get in line, come right up, and I'll circumcise you. <laughs> Any takers on that? Well, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. And Peter said, now remember, Peter brought the first Gentile convert into the church, Cornelius. And Peter is the assigned leader of the church by Jesus himself. So Peter got up and he addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believed. You remember the whole Cornelius incident. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? Why would you want to take the law and drop it on them when we ourselves couldn't keep the law? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ, period, end of story. And Paul will go to great lengths to discuss that topic in Ephesians and particularly in Romans, Paul's magnum opus. Well, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And when they finished, James spoke up. James, the brother of the Lord, is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So James, everyone had their say, but somebody had to make a decision. They're not going to vote on it. That's not how things were done. So James spoke up and he said, brothers, listen to me. Simon, Peter, has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent, its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who hear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. It's my judgment, therefore, 
that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So that was the decision. And the apostles and elders and the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they chose Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from among us without authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friend Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their very lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid, avoid these things. Farewell. Now, wait just a minute. Didn't we just learn that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, period? Not by anything we do or don't do? So why then would we be saved by grace through faith in Christ, except you have to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality? What's that about? Well. Within Judaism of Jesus' day and this day after Jesus, and indeed to this very day, the kosher laws, the food laws, are indeed given in the law, but they're also deeply ingrained in the culture. Abstain from food sacrificed to idols. Now, every pagan temple had sacrifice as did the temple in Jerusalem and the tabernacle before it. Remember the five great sacrifices in Leviticus chapters 1 through 5? The burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, four of which were animal sacrifices. The fellowship offering or the peace offering. When you find yourself out of sorts with God. You've said things and done things that you shouldn't have said and done, and you want to get right with God. How do you do it within this sacrificial system? Well, first, you recognize the reality of your sin and the fact that you are separated from God. And what do you do? You bring a sin offering to the tabernacle or temple, a lamb, a bull or a goat, you place your hands upon the head of the animal, 
confess your sin, and then the animal is slain in your place. You should be the one being slain, but the animal bears your sin. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as it were. Now you've dealt with the issue of sin. Next, you have to make restitution for what you've done. And you do that by literally making restitution, if possible, and by a guilt offering. A guilt offering. Offering number two, an animal sacrifice. Now that you've dealt with the issue of sin and you've made restitution, then you can come into full fellowship with God. The burnt offering, another animal sacrifice, speaks of offering yourself entirely to God, body, spirit, soul, entirely. And then after the burnt offering, after offering yourself entirely to God, you have a grain offering, which is bread, unleavened bread and wine, and a peace offering or fellowship offering, another animal sacrifice, and part of that sacrifice is given back to you. In effect, you're sharing a meal with God. You're back in full fellowship. So every pagan temple did very much the same. This was nothing new in, in Scripture. So let's say that you're living in Corinth, Corinth had many temples, a temple to Asclepius, the god of healing, a temple to Apollo, uh, many other gods. And let's say that uh, you were a member of the, or a follower of the temple of Apollo, and sacrifices would be made, and you're in fellowship with the god, and you share a meal together. An animal sacrifice would be offered the best, the best of the herd or the flock. That would be the best meat around. But if you offer a, a bull, that's a lot of meat. So what do you do with the leftover meat? Well, you share part of it yourself, but the temple would operate a meat market and the meat would be sold. So now you become a Christian and you go to your home church or house church, and you have fellowship. You know, you go, you socialize a bit, you have a meal together. After the meal, uh, a teacher would teach from scripture. You would pray together, you would sing together. But the meal itself was a sit-down meal. Now, when you sit down to have that meal, well, you have a really nice platter of lamb chops. Oh, they look really good. Barbecued. Hmm. Yum. Love those. And you say to your host, these are delicious. Where did you get them? Well, I bought them at the Temple of Apollo at the meat market. Really? I, I don't know. I, I don't really feel right about eating meat that was a fellowship offering to a pagan god in our celebration. I, 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 it just doesn't sit right with me. That would have been a real issue for a Jewish believer, eating meat 
sacrificed to a pagan god. And abstain from blood. We're told in the Torah, in Leviticus, that you may not eat blood. The life of the creature is in its blood. When the blood all runs out, the creature dies. The blood, in the thinking of the day, carried the very life of the creature. And you're not to eat blood. My friend and colleague, Rabbi Michael Marison, said growing up in a Jewish home, we always had very well done meat. Steaks were like shoe leather, not a drop of blood in them. You're not to eat blood. You're not to eat the meat of strangled animals. There are many ways to kill an animal. Strangling it is a torturous way. Try to strangle a lamb or a goat or a bull. It would be a terrible way for that animal to die. You're to kill the animal in, in, in a merciful way. And of course, sexual immorality. All four things were just embedded in the very culture of Judaism. Let me tell you another story. Our colleague in Turkey, when we traveled to Turkey in the footsteps of Paul, we traveled to all the places Paul went in Asia Minor, along with going to the seven churches mentioned in Revelation. And our colleague there, Fadi Kairak, owns the travel company that I work with. And he's been here to the US many times. He's often stayed at our home. And uh, we went out to lunch at the Olive Garden. I like the Olive Garden. Soup and salad, all you can eat. And I get the pasta fazool. So we sit down to order, and I order the soup and salad. And uh, Fadid said, well, I have the same. And then he said to the waiter, oh, um, by the way, is there pork in the soup? Because Fadid is Muslim. Muslims don't eat pork, just like Jews. And the waiter said, well, I don't know. I'll have to ask. He went to the kitchen, he came back and said, well, yes, there's some pork uh, included in the meat. He said, well, I'll, I'll, have a, I'll just have the salad then. Now, Farid is not a particularly devout Muslim, but it is so embedded in the Muslim culture that you don't eat pork, that the very idea, if he had eaten it and then found out, it would, he'd be nauseous. The very idea would just turn his stomach. So when you have a church where half the people in it are of Jewish background and half the people are of Gentile background, the Gentiles should not do these things, eat food sacrificed to idols and blood, the meat of strangled animals and so on, because it would be offensive to the other people in your church. It's a matter of good manners. And that's as it should be, I think. We even have an incident here in Galatians when Peter goes up to Syrian Antioch and he's going to speak there. And they have a meal afterward. And they have the kosher table and they have the Gentile table. And Peter's never eaten a lobster He's never eaten shrimp cocktail. He's never had pork chops. 
But when he looks at the two tables, let's see, do I want the gefilte fish and chicken soup or the pork chops and the shrimp cocktail? And he went over to the Gentile table and he was putting food on the plate when a delegation from Jerusalem showed up and Peter saw them and he just put the plate down and moved over to the other kosher line. Paul spotted him and Paul said, yo, yo, Peter, you are, you're a hypocrite. He called him on it. Oh boy, what a moment in Galatians. So these things are not, have nothing to do with salvation. They have to do with a community of Jews and Gentiles living together and mutual respect for each other's cultural traditions. So the letters written, the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and they were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After spending time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, Syrian Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. So Paul and Barnabas resumed their teaching duties at the church in Syrian Antioch. But the letter is ready to go. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, you know, we should go back and visit the brothers in all the places where we went out on the first journey. See how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. Oh, that was something. In Perga, on the first missionary journey, Mark cut and ran. In the middle of the night, he got up and left. And Mark's a young man, what, maybe 20 years old? Paul and Barnabas are in their 30s. Barnabas maybe his 40s. A nephew of Barnabas. And Mark ran home to Mama. Now, Barnabas wants to take him again. Paul said, no way. We are not taking him. In Pamphylia, he didn't continue with us. He cut and ran. And they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company, Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers, to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So they went in two separate directions, retracing the first missionary journey, but in reverse order. And I could just see Paul saying, I hope I don't meet you somewhere along the road. And never again in Scripture will Paul and Barnabas meet or speak. There was a breach there, something we need to think about and learn about. After all Barnabas did for Paul, he dis discerned that Saul of Tarsus was genuine after the road to Damascus. He introduced Saul, now Paul, to the other apostles. He trusted him. He traveled with him to Syrian Antioch. Remember, they sent 
Paul back to back home to Tarsus and Barnabas at Syrian Antioch went to Tarsus, got Paul, brought him back. They taught there together. They did the first missionary journey together. This was a big falling out between two friends who were very close. As I'm looking at my text, I have it propped up with a, uh, on a little lectern and a, and a light above it shining on it so I can read it. There's, there's, there's a dark shadow over these concluding verses of chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas will never meet or speak again. I, that saddens me here at the end of Acts 15. And we've seen this very thing in our own churches. People who were very close, who, who both were serious believers, who helped each other, who shared a ministry together, and they have a falling out that never heals. Happened to Paul and Barnabas. Think about that. Think about that the next time someone you're close to in the church, someone you work with in the church, someone with whom you share a ministry, and you have a falling out. Well, that's not the way it should be. And I wonder how Paul dealt with that later on. We don't find out in Scripture, but maybe one day when we meet them, I'm going to ask Paul about this because it bothers me. It really disturbs me, even to this very day. So that brings us to the end of our episode, pushing right ahead uh, toward Easter, a glorious time and a time that we should prepare for along our journey of faith. Okay, gang, bye-bye now. <laughs>